KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. You're listening to Community Radio. It's 6 p.m. and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Today is Tuesday, August 16th. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Tonight, the California Report talks with retired fire inspector Mark Almer, a resident of Grizzly Flats, and highlights a new investigation from CAP Radio and the California Newsroom that found that the U.S. Forest Service knew for decades that a wildfire could devastate the El Dorado County community. Paul Emery and Steve Baker talk about robbing Powell to pay Meade, and Mark Cunaberti urges those that must bite to nibble rather than gorge. This is the California Report. I'm Maddie Bolaños in San Francisco. There's no end in sight for a strike which saw almost 2,000 Kaiser mental health care workers walk off the job yesterday in Northern California and the Central Valley. KQED health correspondent Leslie McClurg reports from the picket line in San Francisco. Kaiser, Kaiser, can't you The workers carry signs that read patients over profits. Alexis Petrakis is a clinical psychologist in Petaluma. She says caseloads are unrelenting. I'm currently booked out six weeks. So I meet somebody new, they tell me their story, and maybe they even are honest about trauma that they've experienced. I try to find a 30-minute phone call just to check in. It's not the care that I know that they deserve, and I know how to do it. The striking workers say Kaiser needs to hire more staff to ease the burden. Kaiser says it's trying, but it's up against a national shortage of mental health providers. No date has been set yet for negotiations. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. In other labor news, warehouse workers at an Amazon Air Freight facility in San Bernardino County walked off the job yesterday. The group, Inland Empire Amazon Workers United, says about 160 employees walked out at the San Bernardino International Airport facility. The workers are demanding higher pay and say they're often working in unsafe working conditions caused by excessive heat. Amazon tells the Los Angeles Times that the number of employees that walked out was actually closer to 70, and the company offers competitive pay and a quote-unquote safe work experience. Down south, the number of people hospitalized after falling from the border wall is on pace to surpass last year's record. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis spoke with UCSD Health's head of trauma about the alarming numbers. UC San Diego Health is on pace to receive a record number of patients who fell off the border wall this year, over 300, up from last year's 270. Dr. J. Doucette says that there are so many border fall victims that they've set up a special ward in the hospital just for them. It's not getting any better. The number of border falls is continuing to be the same or a little bit higher. Doucette says that he's noticed the number of patients increase since the implementation of Title 42, a Trump-era policy that blocks asylum to most migrants. He's also noticed more severe injuries since the 17-foot-tall border wall was replaced by a 30-foot wall. The most common injury we'll see would be a a fracture of uh, the lower leg. And frequently those fractures are open. That is, the bone has come out through the skin. It's a nasty kind of fracture. For the California Report, I'm Gustavo Solis in San Diego. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org And Eric and Wendy Schmidt. 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. A year ago today, the Calder Fire burned through the small town of Grizzly Flats in Northern California. The fire destroyed more than 400 homes, about two-thirds of the community. A new investigation from CAP Radio and the California Newsroom found that the U.S. Forest Service predicted, for decades, a wildfire could devastate Grizzly Flats. But its plan to protect the town didn't get done. Scott Rod reports. Mark Almer is one of the lucky ones. His home is still standing, but his view is now mostly scorched trees and empty foundations. It's uh, kind of lonely around here now. Nearly two decades ago, the U.S. Forest Service gave a presentation showing how wildfire could level Grizzly Flats, and they modeled a fire that mirrored what happened last year. They showed a fire that could potentially wipe out our community within 24 hours. It wasn't 24 hours, but it was close in the Caldor Fire. So Elmer, a retired fire inspector, got to work. He helped create a volunteer group of residents called the Grizzly Flats Fire Safe Council. They raised money through community barbecues and wine tastings. They wrote grants. All told, they tackled nearly $2 million worth of fire prevention projects. The Forest Service, meanwhile, removed some excess trees and brush, but most of it was miles from town. It wasn't until 10 years after the community meeting that the agency announced a plan to protect Grizzly Flats, called the Trestle Project. It promised to reduce fuels in overgrown forests and set prescribed fires on 15,000 acres around the community. Fire ecologists say this work is essential to reducing catastrophic wildfires, and we don't have any time to waste. But the history of the Forest Service in the time that we lived there was that everything took forever. Kathy Melvin was a member of the FireSafe Council. She lost her home of four decades in the Caldor Fire. It would take years and years and years for anything to get done. The Forest Service originally said it would finish the Trestle Project by 2020. The agency later pushed back the date by about a decade. Our investigation found they finished only 14 percent of the planned work before the Caldor Fire, which grew to one of the most destructive blazes in state history. Forest Service officials say they faced a series of hurdles in getting the work done. Pushback from environmental groups, staff shortages, and climate change, which has reduced opportunities to set prescribed burns. But the biggest problem, they say, was money. You know, let's not make any bones about this. We did not have the funding to do the level of work that needed to be done out there. Randy Moore is chief of the U.S. Forest Service. He's optimistic that billions of dollars recently allocated by Congress will jumpstart this work. He declined to weigh in on whether completing the Trestle Project would have protected Grizzly Flats. I, I, I'm not really sure, um, you know, why we keep talking about that question. Others had a lot to say. We spoke to a dozen sources, including wildfire experts, career firefighters, residents, and former Forest Service officials, who believe Grizzly Flats would have stood a better chance of surviving the fire if the Forest Service had finished the Trestle Project. That includes retired district ranger Dwayne Nelson, one of the project's key architects. I think there would have been a very high probability that Grizzly Flat would not have burned in the Caldor Fire. It could have meant survival. Last year, he watched as the Caldor Fire consumed his former district. I'm not going to say I felt guilt, but what I did feel was remorse. Nelson says he's proud of the plan his team laid out to protect Grizzly Flats, and proud of the work that had gotten done. 
but he says there was still plenty left to do when the Caldor fire devastated this small community. For The California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Grizzly Flats. And that's The California Report for Tuesday, August 17th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Marie Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Looking briefly at regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, a heat advisory remains in effect for the area until 8 p.m. on Friday. Tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 73. Wednesday will bring a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 11 a.m., but otherwise mostly sunny and hot with a high near 97. The average AQI for Grass Valley and Nevada City is currently 54, which is considered acceptable. However, there may be a risk after prolonged exposure, particularly for those who are unusually sensitive to air pollution. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, the chance of thunderstorms will increase as the week continues, with the best chances extending through Thursday before diminishing into the weekend. Overnight showers are possible tonight, with a few thunderstorms possible overnight on Wednesday. Tonight in Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, partly cloudy with a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tonight's low will be around 56 degrees. On Wednesday, the chance of showers and thunderstorms will increase to 40%, mainly after 11 a.m., with a high near 83 degrees. The average AQI for the Truckee and Lake Tahoe region is currently good at 15. There is a heat advisory in effect for Sacramento and the Valley as well. That continues until 8 p.m. on Friday. Tonight, the skies over Sacramento will be mostly clear with a low around 72. Wednesday will be sunny and hot with a high near 102. The average AQI for Sacramento and the surrounding valley is considered acceptable at 65, but those who are unusually sensitive to air pollution should limit exposure. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Ed Abbey and monkey wrenchers everywhere rejoice. Experts are discussing what life would be like if Lake Powell were allowed to drain completely. Once thought a silly idea, bandied about only in radical environmental circles, the extreme measure is being considered in light of prolonged drought. More information on this week's Water News. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, it's time for Water News with Steve Baker. Colorado River, Steve, we've heard a lot of talk about it. Um, and they're, what I'm hearing is they're experiencing a really serious drought. How bad is it? It's been, from what I've read, it's it's been characterized as a very, you know, as very severe 22-year drought. That's a long drought for us, something we're not used to experiencing. Now, when you look back in time, say 2,000 years, there was a period where we, in the Colorado River Basin, we had a 24-year drought. And uh, Connie Woodhouse, she's a professor of Arizona, at uh, Arizona of uh, University of Arizona, she pointed out 
that uh, this was calculated from paleoclimatologic data, from lakes, from bogs, from caves. They didn't use any tree ring studies for that one. But the study showed that today's Colorado River flow is about 85% or 84% of the average flow that one expects. And it's causing, it's raising havoc because everybody needs water from the Colorado River. Now, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, the low flow was 68% average flow. All right. So what did that that, what that tells me is it can get a lot worse. And, uh, and then when I think about it, okay, we have how many people? 40 million people using that water that need that water. Then uh, that tells me that you know, we've, we've got to really get on this thing. And, and, of course, they are. They are. But, you know, as extreme as this sounds, there are also some extreme responses uh, to what's happening today, and I, I really uh, would never have thought that I would hear such uh, other of other extreme responses. Why is that extreme response, Steve? You know, there are two important reservoirs in the Colorado River uh, basin, and one is Lake Powell, and of course, Glen Canyon Dam uh, pushes back the water to create Lake Powell. That's in northern Arizona, and then we have Lake Mead, where the Hoover Dam. Uh, pushes back the water to create uh, uh, Lake Mead, and that's in southern Nevada. Now, both of these uh, reservoirs are experiencing very low water levels. So the thought is this. Let's drain Lake Powell completely and and use that water to fill up Lake Mead. So the thought is if you do that, you can save a lot of water. There won't be any more leakage from the bottom of Lake Powell. Lake Powell is built on a sandstone. That sandstone is permeable, so there's a lot of loss through that sandstone. And then the second thing is, of course, evaporation. You only have one big reservoir rather than two. So when you look at the pot, the calculated, the estimated losses that would be saved, uh, they're talking about enough water to serve 9 million people. So it is significant to make that change. And uh, it's being, you know, I, I think it's being considered uh, just as much as many of the other extreme ideas. Now, one of the downsides of emptying out Lake Powell would be that you're going to lose hydropower at the Glen Canyon Dam. It produces a lot of power right now, power enough to, to serve 5 million people. So there's a hit there. And then also, you, it would raise havoc with the water rights system that they have in the West. Uh, there's a, uh, one of the criteria you use in allocating water through the appropriative doctrine is our uh, diversion points. And, of course, Lake Powell Diversion Point would be going away to some degree. So not sure how that would be done. And uh, anyhow, it's a very extreme uh, possibility. But who, who knows? We have to consider the extremes now. Okay, let's get pragmatic. Okay. Um, how could the Colorado River be managed? Okay, these are some general ideas that I've heard and read about. Uh, one is, and I'm sure we're all used to it, <clears throat> live within our means, okay? What a, what a concept, right? But the way this would work is you don't allow the reservoir or the groundwater bodies, the aquifers, to exceed the average flow that's experienced in the prior 10 years. So this ten, it's this 10-year bracket that you're always trying to be under that average. The second idea is to adapt our water use to what's going on in the reservoirs. So as the reservoir inflows change, so does our, our water activities. Okay, so I'm kind of in the moment type of thing constantly. The third idea is more of a transactional approach. Um, it's uh, you allocate water uh, for all the regions and all the stakeholders, and then you set an annual uh, flow goal. 
you decide on the amount of water that you're going to either consume or save or maybe trade with some other area. And then you decide how much of this remaining water, whatever's left over, how much of that you put back into Lake Powell and Lake Mead. So that, that would be the, the third approach. Now, these, these approaches consider, you know, both flow and volume. That's good. Uh, they divide the cutback uh, amongst everybody. So everyone shares in the, in the pain here. And it's all about adapting, you know, adapting based on forecasting uh, these, uh, these, these uh, actual flows. So, so, you know, it's a possibility. And, uh, and we'll just have to see what happens. Okay, so let's take what we're hearing about the Colorado River and apply it to the Sierra foothills. And in that sense, maybe the Yuba River would be our local equivalent of the Colorado River. Is that an accurate uh, (laughs) look at it? We can look at it that way, of course, yeah. Well, uh, okay, two things. Uh, What should we watch out for? Okay, well, the way you watch out for something is you have to monitor it. So are we seeing potentially damaging trends, say, in water quality, in reservoir levels, in groundwater levels, those kinds of things? You need to have your eyes on the resources. That is the first thing you need to do. Uh, We are doing that to some degree. We need to do that a whole lot more. So, uh, but that is very, very important. Now, as far as how do we respond to all this? What can we do? I favor in, in the third and also the first idea, sort of a hybrid of what I was talking about a moment ago. I think we ought to live, uh, let's, let's live within our means. That makes a lot of sense to me by, by addressing our water priorities of use as well as our regional needs. I think that would be the way to go. It'll take a lot of conversation to do that. Now, I would love, I'm, I'm very curious, I would love to hear from the listeners as to what they think as far as uh, what two priorities do you feel are most important? And then, you know, what two priorities do you think are least important? And I'd, I'd love to hear about that and just to give you an ideas on the types of water uses. We have agricultural row crops. We have agricultural orchards. We have dairy. We have ranch. We have drinking water, in-house uses, right, of our water. We have landscape, whether it be in our communities or in our own properties. We have the environment. And uh, we, have, we have industry. We have, we have recreation. We have a lot of different water uses. So what are the two most important to you and what are the two that are least important to you? Let Paul know <laughs> or myself. Just email us and uh, we'll share your thoughts uh, with everybody else on air next time. Steve, thanks. You bet. Talk to you in two weeks. Okay. Thanks for the update on the Colorado River. Been yeah. kind of interested in that. Yeah, I hope it. Uh, uh, we'll come up with something, but Southern California is going to take a major, major hit. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. This week, Mark Cunaberti asks, What if the recent market rally is just the end of the beginning? Out of an abundance of caution, he suggests stock buyers snack rather than feast.
Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Seems like most of my latest newscasts have been about inflation, the Federal Reserve, also known as the Fed, and their interest rate increases, and the crazy action in the stock markets. Yes, there's more to economic news than those three topics, but the market's crazy action is a result of the first two topics I mentioned, inflation and the Fed. With the recent four-week rally in the markets now in the books, investors are wondering if it's finally time to relax, take a deep breath, and push the buy button. Throughout the duration of the brutal hammering of the markets in the last nine months or so, I have oscillated between remain calm, sell some stocks on the way down, and more recently suggesting that if the FOMO bug bites you, fear of missing out, nibble instead of gorge on a meal of solid dividend-paying iconic companies and beaten up but financially strong technology stocks. These technology stocks exist mostly in the NASDAQ market. Some of these tech giants are off as much as 90%. I use the word nibble instead of gorge with the thinking being, yes, they could get cheaper, but a year from now, one might look back and say, why didn't I at least buy some of these when they were all beaten to hell? True, many of these stocks have rebounded many percentage points from their lows, but if one glances at a stock chart of many of these hammered companies, the recent rally is barely noticeable. In other words, although many of these stocks have risen 10, 20, or 30%, to think one has missed the turn would be short-sighted. What you may only have missed out on is a bunch of head fake rallies and more frustration. Loading the boat now with stocks because of the recent rally is to believe all is well and will continue to be well in the markets and our economy. The truth of the matter is, although the latest inflation figures hint at a reduction in inflation, we may be only at the end of the beginning. Statistics are always backwards looking, so it is in this analyst's opinion we are seeing the last of the wild consumer spending brought on by the lucrative government handouts of the last 24 months, which was the start of the COVID rescue packages. The recent earnings report, although bleak for some companies, were moderately okay for others. The recent OK news may have encouraged some stock buyers to step forward. Additionally, the recent drop in inflation data has also bolstered some investor enthusiasm. Since the Feds, however, have only started to increase interest rates and have yet to begin quantitative tightening, which is removing money from the economic system, the real effects of Fed policy is likely only at the beginning of the beginning. Although the latest earning reports may have shown only a moderate drop in revenue for some, the next earning seasons may better illustrate as to how much rope the consumer has left before he starts to feel the inflation noose tightening around his monetary neck. As it relates to nibbling on stocks instead of gorging, should the next earning reports, which start around November, show a continued erosion in spending by consumers, the stock market could start down as economic reality bites down hard once again on Wall Street. If you load up on stocks now based on the recent rally, you could be setting yourself up for more pain. Best to instead nibble on a handful of profitable companies that make real products and didn't get too badly hammered during the last earnings reports. That way, if the market continues to run, you will participate, which will help to eliminate that nagging FOMO feeling. And if the market indeed takes another header in the fall, you'll still have plenty of cash to buy stocks at even lower prices. I'm watching the market so you don't have to, and that does it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed are my opinions only and not meant as investment advice. 
advice, nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet, its staff members, or underwriters. I hold a degree in economics with honors, 1979, from San Diego State University, and hold California Insurance License OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free, our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kunigoshi. And that closes out our newscast for Tuesday, August 16th. KVMR gets support from Rick Kalb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983, providing wealth management and retirement planning strategies, also second opinions on current investment portfolios. On Spring Street in Nevada City, information online at rickkalb.com. And Clearwater and Filtration offering solutions for water quality, well operations, water storage management problems, and conservation. Providing water testing services, treatment, and home filtration system design or evaluation. Information at clearwaterandfiltration.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Claudio Mendonca. Have a great evening.